are there things that shouldn't have maple syrup on them? Are you, like, are you just, like, anything? I'm willing to bathe. Can and will I mean, don't, don't put it on the floor. Don't put it on. Don't, don't make <laughs> okay. that, everyone. Happy fall, y'all. My name is Anastasia, and this is another episode of That's Rad, a podcast presented by the Littleton Food Co-op. To celebrate this autumnal season we're in, or depending on when you're listening to this, we were just in it, are going to be in it, we're in it a while ago, I don't know, maybe by the time you listen to this, seasons just don't exist anymore. In any case, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite fall foods. For me, the idea of fall food makes me think of apples, cider, maple syrup, pumpkins, cider donuts, candy corn, and more. That's why, at least for me, it felt serendipitous to steal some free time from Morgan of Mount Cabot Maple and Ben and Bill of Champlain Orchards. All of their products pair well with a cool autumn afternoon, but I hope what you hear today We'll also encourage you to support these local businesses all year round. We'll talk to the orchards later, but first up, we're chatting with Morgan, who runs Mount Cabot Maple in Lancaster, New Hampshire, along with her partner, Sophie. While we couldn't steal both of them, someone has to keep working on their infamous maple cream, of course, Morgan was able to share some loosely kept secrets about what makes their sugar specifically so good and how you can use maple with more than just your pancakes. Here she is now. So, in my humble opinion, it's undeniably a crime to be from northern New Hampshire and not like maple syrup, but many people do not have the privilege to know what it goes on behind the scenes to somehow turn a tree into something you put on your pancakes, which is kind of weird now that I'm phrasing it that way and thinking about it like that. But to demystify that all a little more and share more about her own maple production business is Morgan of Mount Cabot Maple. Morgan, thank you so much for being here and happy fall. Happy fall. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So according to your website, the trees that you use today have been tapped for their sugar on and off since at least 1860. Just to set the record completely straight, you're not like an immortal being, right? (laughs) We'll find out. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Um, And... (laughs) I also understand that you took over operations in 2020. I would love if you could share with us how Mount Cabot Maple came to be and then how you decided to get involved, you know, in the midst of a global pandemic nonetheless. Yeah, it's um, it's been an interesting ride. Um, so Mount Cabot has yeah, been tapped uh, on and off since about 1860. There's town records um, showing the Rowell family. We're tapping there, and we're out on Rowell Road, which bears their name to this day. And they began tapping with, you know, buckets and over a fire. 
carrying each bucket with a yoke, uh, and they were pretty high up in the sugar bush. So there's parts of our sugar bush that have been tapped since that time, and there's other parts that are newer. I grew up on the side of this mountain, and since I was a kid, I could remember sugarers going up and, uh, you know, breaking trail on their snowshoes. And um, when I was very young, it was uh, owned by, the land was owned by Ray Hartshorn and uh, a guy named Fred Claus there. Um, so I remember walking down to the sap house that was down below my parents' driveway and Fred Claus pouring me a little shot of maple syrup and giving me a donut. And uh, after his tenure, a guy named Biff Wyman came along with Carl Linquist and they built the sap house that we are now using. They built that in 2005. They expanded the sugar bush quite a bit. They had a, a vacuum system up and running, so tubing and all that. And Biff ran that business for about uh, 15 years. And when he was ready to retire, he wrote me a letter. Uh, I was living out in California at the time. And he wrote me a letter that said, hey, Morgan, I think you'd be a great sugar maker. Uh, here's why I've had such a great life doing it and, and really just you know, wrote down the works, and um, the truth is that I had always had a dream to return to my to my family land because that that land where the sugar bush was and and where the sap house was was on my grandparents' land and my parents' land. Um, and so I felt a real calling to come back. And there's of course other other you know dreams and aspirations I have for for more of the land besides the sugar bush, but it was really a, a kind of a no-brainer by the time I got that letter in the mail. And luckily, my wonderful partner, Sophie, is an arborist, and so that added another element of, a, a, you know, dream team. So we decided to take it on, and we moved back in September of 2020, and yeah, we've knocked out our first season, going into the second one. And, you know, the tradition continues. I am absolutely obsessed with this letter. Um, I feel <laughs> like you need to preserve, if you still have it, you need to preserve that thing. And I definitely it'll be it. one of those, like, tea-stained <laughs> things that people from generations now, like, go back to. And they're like, wow, this is what started the next generation of Mount Cabot. And I'm also loving the energy of this, like, Disney Channel slash Hallmark kind of <laughs> vibe of, like, a child was given a donut and a shot of maple syrup when she was a child, and that changed her fate forever. And, like, full circle, here we are. That's immediately what jumped to my head. I don't know how you felt about it, but that's what I'm feeling. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little um, you know, uh, quaint New England charm goes a long way. Though. Yes. <laughs> and when you were describing the history of Mount Cabot Maple, you used a lot of terms for maple sugaring, um, you know, tapping and all of the different instruments and things you use. So can you tell us more about, like, what's the actual process for maple making maple syrup. I'm assuming you don't have like the yolks anymore back from the 1800s, <laughs> but who who am I to know? Um, That's right. And, and with yeah. that, how are, how are you different than other maybe bigger production companies? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, so if you walk around our woods, you can you can find uh, tap buckets, you know, in and around the place. But we, we don't use those anymore. We use a, a vac system that is a whole network of tubes. I think of it uh, as, like, each tree is a capillary, and the vacuum pump is, like, the heart. Um, and each tap is where we've drilled a 516, about a quarter inch, just over a quarter inch hole into a tree. And we prepare for... We prepare that whole network of tubes uh, pretty much as soon as the leaves come off the tree, so starting in fall. And we're, we're going out there to, to check for any things that need repair. You know, there's a lot of natural expansion and contraction throughout the, the, the seasons. And so, you know, those fittings can kind of come apart, you know, pull, pull a lot of down sticks and stuff off the lines and just get everything, like, sitting pretty. And then you tap those trees in January where snowshoeing all around the forest, going tree to tree to tree, carrying a backpack of tools. And we get that process finished pretty much just in time for uh, the season to turn. And so when you think about um, how trees are producing the sugar, all summer they're rising, okay? You know, the leaves are out and they're gathering all this sun energy. And when fall comes, they got to send that energy down to the roots where it doesn't freeze to overwinter. And then in the springtime, when the, the days start to get a little bit longer and warmer, the trees start to wake up a bit. And when they start waking up, they send that sugar first thing straight up to the leaf to create that new growth. So, so that's what creates the buds, and that's what basically produces is the next cycle. And so we are just popping an IV into that tree. And so when it's waking up in the springtime, you've got these warm days, and that's when the sap is going up. And in the cold nights, it's going down. And so it's that up and down and up and down that is the sap running. So it's when, it's when the sap runs that uh, our vacuum system and our tubing collects it all, brings it down to our sap house into some big collection tanks. It's filtered before it goes in there. We use a sort of extra layer of efficiency. We use reverse osmosis. And so that's a you know pretty common technology in a lot of different liquid-related projects. You know, reverse osmosis will take uh, fresh water out of salt water, things like that. And so we are taking the sugar water out of the water. And so when we use reverse osmosis, it basically, you know, runs out of those first collection tanks into the building, in through these big machines, and it pretty much pushes that liquid through a membrane and takes the sap from 2 or 3% when it comes in up to 8 9 10% and send that up sort of into another tank. So that's our that's like another filtration and concentration process. Uh, and then from there, it'll drop down into our wood-fired evaporator. So the evaporator is pretty cool. We have a really interesting and I think fairly unique setup where there's a series of kind of preheaters, something called a steam away. So so the some of the heat from the wood-fired arch will um, be transferred through copper pipes into a whole series scan and it's sort of air at the liquid and liquid splashes up onto these hot copper pipes and that blows away a whole bunch of the steam so we're taking water out of it in that step and then it will go from that sort of top level down into the back of the evaporator the back pan and it will there hit sort of another whole series of you know corrugated metal that's all attached to the furnace and that has another way of, of uh, getting water to condense condensate uh, on the sort of ceiling in that chamber and it will run out again down over the side so that's another level of concentration and so by the time it gets to the front pan it's really 40 percent concentrated about and then in that front pan where it's directly over the fire 
uh, that's when it gets up to uh, the density of syrup, about 68, 69%, depending on the day. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's the way that we do it. I realized that was a technical mouthful. But <laughs> all that is to say, like, we are doing every step of the process ourselves. And what's different, I guess, since you asked, what's, what's different about us um, is that we are, you know, the small business, not just in our in our production where it's just a few of us who are making it uh, and doing all the tapping ourselves, but you know we are also marketing and and branding and delivering to all of our customers, and so we're sort of like the full boutique one stop shop for all of it. You um, call it technical. I call it the most delicious science lesson I've ever had. <laughs> It is pretty awesome. It's it's really impressive that this stuff comes in looking like water and it comes out where we, we filter it. We filter it off the finishing pan into a barrel. And so it goes through like four steps of filtration and you just have like the best tasting stuff in the world. And, you know, we're tasting it throughout that process because we're doing that whole process every day during the springtime. So, you know, this year we boiled, I think it was like March, 9th to April 12th or something like that. And, you know, every single day, it's different. The quality of the syrup, the flavor of the syrup, the the, the, the color changes, you know, sometimes it's hourly. Um, and that's all because of what's going on uh, with the trees, with the weather. And, you know, we also try to keep everything as clean as possible because that really has a, has a big impact on the, the color and the flavor. But, yeah, it's, it's an amazing, you know, food science and and sort of practical skill and it's also great because um that density that we're trying to achieve like the, the sort of the definition of syrup is a particular density but the temperature at which we're pouring it off the fire will change every day based on the atmospheric conditions so if it's like huh. a little more humid or a little more like you know i started calling the airport in whitefield because they have the automated weather observation service, and I took a log because I log a lot of data throughout this process, and it and it was Biff recommended to me like, hey, you should start keeping track of this, and so I started keeping track of it and found that like an indicator, although it still seems pretty up in the air, is like how dense is the atmosphere? If it feels a little bit more dense, if you're gonna, um, so like if if the atmosphere is acting like we're at 1500 feet instead of you know 500 feet or something like that. Um, then it's gonna it's gonna change the temperature at which you're making syrup. So there's a lot of really cool science and a lot of like things that I am still trying to wrap my head around. But it's really really fun to learn and do. I always have something to say about the volatile weather of New England and Northern New Hampshire. Um, but I thought it was basically just like my mood being impacted. So that's kind of crazy to think. It impacts like so much. It sounds like of your production and and even the creation of the syrup itself. Mm-hmm. It's really something that you have to track and keep your finger on because as a sugar maker, you're you're standing there and you're constantly calibrating and recalibrating the temperature at which you're making syrup throughout the day. So it's it's not really a set it and forget it. It's like it's like a very um, you know, you really manage all of these different liquids and temperatures and energy inputs throughout the day as you're making it. And, you know, well, you know what they say in New England, if you don't like the weather, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Like if if it's cloudy in the morning and we're making syrup and then it rains and it clears right up, that thing's going to change, which is it's so cool. And I'm sure climate change doesn't help any of those processes. <sighs> yeah. Well, a big part of our story is the fact that our, our forest was hit really, really hard by the forest tent caterpillar. And that happened five and six years ago. They pretty much hit our sugar bush two years in a row. And the forest tent caterpillar, it's a native moth species, and it pretty much just comes by with its uh, in the millions and um, eats all the leaves off the trees and they really like sugar maples and you know I've I've talked to people in the area who just you know remember being able to see it moving up our sugar bush and just see the defoliation happening you know in those years and you know we're now down making we're making about 38 percent of the quantity of what they made five years ago because we've lost almost 5,000 trees so part of that is you know, obviously that's directly due to a, a particular pest, but, you know, there was also a drought and we're also, you know, just facing a lot of stress in, in, in the forest. And so, yeah, climate change is definitely mm. going to continue to have a major impact. I mean, this this season was a particularly rough season for a lot of producers. You know, people who had about as many taps as us making two barrels just got so warm so fast and stayed warm and, you know, the way that that works is the, the the trees are waking up and the first thing they send is sugar. Um, but if it starts to just be warm, the tree's like, all right, well, you know, the sugar's up there. Let's start sending other stuff and that will change, you know, the flavor and, and you know, it'll, you'll have more, um, you know, more other elements that are just that, that, that pure sugar. And so it'll, it'll really impact your flavor. And that that's when you stop making syrup because it's just, you know, it's not maple syrup. <laughs> mm. And, so you stayed at that like 30 something percent and not to give anything away from your answer, but I think the reason that you didn't or couldn't go higher in production, it has to do with this single source idea. This is something you talk a lot about your syrup being single source. So what does that mean? Really what that means is that everything that we put into a bottle is something that came off of our mountain that we made ourselves. Single source means, you know, it's, it's that single malt <laughs> top shelf scotch of maple syrup where it's not, it's not being blended from, you know, 14 different barrels from 14 different places. It's just what we get here. And so every time that we, you know, put syrup into a bottle to, to bring to someone, we can track, you know, the specific day and <laughs> I can tell you the temperature. <laughs> under which it was produced and what's cool about that is you really benefit it like you know the consumer really really benefits in terms of like what the flavor profile is you can really taste the difference from from barrel to barrel and you can really get that unique flavor profile that's only possible when you've got a, a small kind of small batch artisanal producer like that so single source is really important to us because it says, you know, hey, we're from right here and this is what this syrup tastes like from this group of trees on this mountain. And that means a lot to us because, you know, our flavor is really quite unique and it's, you know, won some awards and people really know 
Malcabot maple for the distinct flavor that we have. You know, not all syrup is created equal. It's a lot like wine, where it's really about the, the terroir, right? The climate and the soil and the angle to the sun and the people who are doing it. And so all of these different factors that are what, you know, produce that flavor. And so when you've got, you know, a bigger, a bigger distributor, you know, who's, who's mixing different things and just creating a sort of homogenous product, you're, you're losing that kind of character. And so we're trying to preserve that and preserve some of the traditional techniques, you know, with our, with our wood fire production. Mm-hmm. And, I'm sure another thing that influences your production and your taste is being an organic producer. So you are still an organic producer and, to my understanding, have always been. Is that correct? Yeah. Mount Cabin Maple has always been organic. Really yeah. what it means is we, we treat our trees right and we don't use anything inorganic. So we don't use any pesticides and we don't use any inorganic defomers. There's a little bit of, of organic safflower oil, really just a, you know, a drop in the barrel that helps keep the foam down while we're producing it. But that's pretty much it. Get a, you know, checkup from the state every year, make sure, keep our certification and, and yeah, just continue to learn to be better foresters and, and uh, better stewards of the land is what is, you know, part of our ethos. Was it ever like, I mean, I know you haven't been directly in charge of operations for that long, but mm-hmm. you or any of the owners, like, was it ever a question of like, you know, maybe times were tough after the caterpillars, like we need to cut corners kind of deal did was it ever considered no i don't think there there would have any ever been any compromise on on being organic um just because you know in 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 maple it's kind of hard to do <laughs> the single source and organic and unblended really speaks to what our product is about right because you know we're we're really passionate about rooting for it bringing it back to health after the caterpillars and and doing what we can as tiny little humans. And the single source, you know, as I said, is, is really about being able to bring our flavor profile to the front. And unblended, of course, is, goes hand in hand with that, where we're, we're never going to buy anybody else's syrup to pass off as our own. So um, what you get is what, what we make. And wrapping up here in your explanations and your really great answers, we've talked a little bit about the seasonality of the job. And, you know, we had a little discussion ourselves of how it's so timely to talk about this during our, our fall episode. <laughs> so, like, we we eat maple syrup in the fall, and then you're producing it in, like, late winter, early spring, depending on what, you're, what New Hampshire decides it wants to be. So <laughs> what happens around the mountain? the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, people love associating uh, maple syrup with the fall. I think it's, you know, really because fall foliage brings so many folks out to New England, and a lot of the, the most pristine foliage is the sugar maple. So everyone remembers about sugar maples and then remembers maple syrup and goes home with maple syrup. So we do we do produce it in, a, in, in the springtime, though. So fall is when our season starts. Um, and, yeah, we talked about getting up into the woods and really picking things up and then all the way through production. And then summertime comes and uh, it's time to get our syrup to the people. So we spend a fair amount of time driving around. You know, we have, um, you know, customers in the coastal cities and stuff like that. And we try to, you know, stay on top of forestry projects as we need to. Um, 
doing some some selective cuts and trying to make space for for young maples to come up through the canopy. And then, you know, we've got a whole bunch of homesteading projects and big dreams up here, so we stay plenty busy. (laughs) I guess I should have phrased it as, like, a completely separate question of, like, what are your thoughts of people only associating maple syrup with the fall? Like, I feel Ah. like from the the glimpse I got, you could have a lot of feelings about that. You know, I – I got to say, I think of this as the, the pancake pigeonhole, where we are really pigeonholed into being breakfast sauce. <laughs> and mm. I really, uh, listen, there's nothing wrong with dumping this all over your pancakes, by all means. But just don't get don't get stuck on only pancakes. We use it in our dressings. We put it in our coffee. I pour it on my yogurt, on my oatmeal. When we're having dumplings real quick out of the freezer because we've been working on the land all day and we're just really hungry, we'll mix uh, soy sauce and maple syrup for our for our dipping sauce. We put it on our braises and our meats and, and such. And so there's really like no limit of ways that you can use it. I mean, the other thing is we make maple cream. And maple cream is amazing. <laughs> maple cream <laughs> is like if syrup became jam and you can just spread it on your toast and put it on your scones out of the oven and put it on your cheddar on the charcuterie board. And it is just like, mm, it's, yeah, makes me love my job. So. <laughs> <laughs> but like, is there, are there things that shouldn't have maple syrup on them are you like are you just like anything i'm willing to can and will i mean tried. don't don't put it on the floor don't put it on don't make the same <laughs> okay. everyone but it really is like you know once you start to find ways to use it more subtly and and especially arts i grew up with mouth have maple syrup so i think like I was a bit spoiled and I didn't necessarily know about how, how like rich and robust and kind of overpowering some other maple sugars can be. But with ours, it's just, it's so delicate and, and like buttery and, and creamy without being too heavy that like I just find a lot of ways to mix it into things. I have to start to be careful about my sugar consumption. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a dangerous, slippery. It's a sticky slope, my friend. Sticky slope, yes. Yeah. yeah, and I I feel like I need to try that dumpling dipping sauce recommendation ASAP. Yeah. But before I run away and do that, I want to give you one last chance. Do you feel like there's anything before we go that you want to make sure people know and understand about Mount Cabot Maple? Mm. I want to share a story about about Mount Cabot Maple and then something that we learned. So we, we talked about our, our woods being sugared since almost 1860. And there was a story that was told to me about how uh, a couple miles over the ridge, there was a family called the Aldens. And the Aldens were sugar makers, just like the Rowells. And they had their own sugar bush and had to walk around the woods with picking up their buckets. And both of these families made sugar to sell. But each spring, the Aldens would sell off all of the syrup that they made, and they would come to Mount Cabot to buy the syrup from the Rowells because they just knew that that was the flavor that they wanted. And so there's this, like, kind of mythos around, like, why is this syrup so good? Like, what is going on? And there's two things that I've learned that are that are pretty impressive. One is really just 
uh, that keeping a biodiverse forest, meaning we, we have a lot of different tree species, we're not just isolating maples, means that we have a, a significant number of basswood trees in our forest. And the basswoods are able to reach their roots lower than the maples. Maples have, have really shallow roots. And that allows them to sort of circulate nutrients mm-hmm. and make them more bioavailable as they, they bring nutrients up and up into their leaves. And those leaves fall, and they fall on top and decompose on top of the soil and are able to feed the forest. And so it's that part of that biodiversity that makes the liver. What other part, which just totally blows me away, is that, my neighbor's a geologist, and she explained to me that when you look at these maps, you see Mount Cabot, and the, the rock that forms the sort of face of Mount Cabot is 450-million-year-old Ordovician rock, late Ordovician rock. <laughs> and the rock, that, yeah, the rock that forms the valley is 150-million-year-old Jurassic period rock. And the 450-million-year-old rock is pretty incredible because it is, the same rock as what is now Morocco. So 450 million years ago, what is now Morocco was off the coast of Maine. And that rock forms the mountain. Now, when rain, you know, precipitates, lands on the mountain, it hits that plate and slides down this seam. And all the water that lands on the mountain pops out at that seam, which means that it's flushing out these, like, nutrients and minerals that are in the rock underneath the mountain. And right at our sugarbush level, we have rich mesic forest, which is a, you know, forest designation type where rare native species are found. And it's part of that, you know, they, they can be found there because there are these just like nutrients that are coming out of the soil. And so it just helps to me explain what is happening here is like geology and biodiversity that really create the flavor that Mount Cabot maple is. And there's nothing that we do except for all the things I explained to make it special. You know, that just is the way that the trees are. Like, such a gift to be able to carry that out into the world. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And based on our conversation today, it feels like there's no one better to carry that out into the world. And <laughs> I'm excited to see you and Sophie continuing to carry it out into the world. So... Again, Morgan, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us more about this wonderful world of maple. And and again, happy fall, but as we know now, happy all season. Every season <laughs> is a maple season up here. podcast, I have two special guests from Champlain Orchards of Shoreham, Vermont. Joining me are Bill, owner and head of horticulture, as well as Ben, director of sales and marketing. Thank you both so much for coming on today. Thank you for having us. It's exciting to be speaking to you. Yeah, thank you, Littleton Co-op members, for being interested. Let's start right at the beginning. Bill, the Champlain Orchard story begins with you buying 60 acres of Vermont Orchard when you were 27, but it's to my understanding that you didn't know much about apple growing and farming. Now, I'm 23, and I don't see myself as four years away from buying any orchards. So I'm really curious, what was the motivation behind that decision that started it all? 
Yeah, let's see. I, I was intrigued by land in general. I was working as an environmental consultant, and I wanted to do professional work, but I also knew that, that uh, being tied to the land was very appealing to me. And I always envisioned I would work on someone else's property as a care, caretaker of some sort. Um, but the land trust in Vermont is quite healthy, and uh, conservation is, is a priority here. Uh, so I found it was potentially quite affordable to actually own the land, and Larrabee's Point Orchard was being conserved at that time. And so I was able to, after looking at many different properties, um, each one was more appealing, and I found myself uh, being able to, to find a professional career as a landowner and, and as a farmer. And my degree was in forest biology from UVM. Uh, so fruit growing was, was all new, but there's a community of, of neighbors here that are also fruit growers that were very welcoming, and uh, we ended up we have ended up working with many of them, and some of their farms have now been sold to us. As, as they've retired. That's great. And I'm sensing a theme of expansion and growth, which leads into my next question. What's changed since then? You know, with the orchard, with you, with the farming landscape in general? Um, yes, a lot has changed. And, and the core, though, of our values have not changed. And the food co-ops here in Vermont and now New Hampshire as well, including Littleton have always appreciated that we have um, an ecological push behind our fruit growing. So it's very challenging, as many know, to grow certified organic uh, tree fruit here in New England because of all of the moisture and very broad pest pressures. But we have found a happy medium um, in the Eco Apple program, which we were sort of doing on our own, but now it's, it's uh, third-party certified um, by the IPM Institute. And so... That, that core group of food co-op shoppers and uh, that were seeking unusual fruit that wasn't only Macintosh, for instance, um, but they were interested in some of these disease-resistant varieties like Crimson Topaz, and they were also interested in, in other products that might help the farm be more sustainable in terms of not being pressured to grow perfect fruit and being able to take blemished fruit and turn it into high-quality sweet or hard cider or an apple pie, um, it, it started to all work. And in having direct contact with the retail buyers at the food co-ops in particular, we were able to establish uh, consistent deliveries that, that helped us justify investing in long-term cold storages that allow us to store the apples 12 months of the year. And so one thing led to another, and now there's quite a diversity beyond the original New England apple orchard of five five varieties. And beyond apples, we're now quite diverse with plums and cherries and peaches, nectarines. And most of that is all being, well, one, we're, we're enjoyed by the challenge, but there's obviously got to be a customer on the other end that's appreciating it and uh, uh, allocating paying us well so that we can we can hire local folks and, and go at it a, uh, another year and, and try to uh, bring fruit that will keep folks interested. So we're continuing to, to try to diversify the, the types of apples and the types of fruit that we're bringing as well as products. Well, I'm glad that we as the co-op can be that customer on the other end for you. Know that 
Um, the relationship we have with individual food co-ops like Littleton Co-op are, are really special to us because, you know, without conscientious consumers that are, you know, intentionally supporting local farmers, thinking about the food miles that their food is traveling and how that food is being grown, um, it, it is a give and take. So we're, we're interested in understanding where consumers would like to see us go and see if it aligns with what we can do. So we, we're, we're gluttons for punishment as farmers, and uh, we have our own diversification interests, right, experiments that are happening here. Uh, but if there's any tree fruit in particular that folks would like to see or um, certain varieties that you'd like to see us attempt, please let us know. And now, you mentioned going beyond the five original varieties of apples. How many varieties of apples do you currently grow? Well, we, we try to wholesale over 100 varieties, and there's um, we've just recently really expanded our planting uh, deep good band. Uh, originally from the Scott Farm, or most recently from the Scott Farm Orchard, is uh, has been with us, helping us expand even further. And so some of those varieties aren't yet mature enough to, to offer on our wholesale route. Uh, so there's an additional 50 apples beyond the core 100 that, that are will become available. And at some point, you know, the, the consumer gets overwhelmed. But it's really fun for us to, to know that um, an apple-like um, – Redfield might not ever and won't ever meet the fresh retail shelf, but it will be intentionally grown for a specific hard cider. And uh, we'd like to do the same thing with uh, Liberty apples being routed directly to applesauce, fresh applesauce in the future. So one of the nice things about the diversity of the products that we're offering is we can begin to um, hopefully grow the ideal apple or the apple blend for each of the products that are leaving here. So it's not just the fresh market that we're planting new orchards for, or it's not a single-use apple. Mm. And I think I can speak for most of the general public in saying that I didn't even know that there were that many types of apples. But that makes sense that an apple that tastes good fresh isn't necessarily going to be the same type of apple that tastes good in a drink form, or an applesauce form, or apple butter form. Yeah, that's true. There's, there's, I don't know exactly how many offhand, but there's several thousand varieties of apples throughout the world, and um, a lot of them are very unique in their characteristics and, and what their best uses are. That's crazy. Moving away from apple specifically, a tagline for Champlain Orchards is Discover Orchard Made. What exactly does that mean, and why is it an important theme for your business? Sure. I'll, I'll let Ben start, and, and then I'll add it. Yeah. Um, a couple years ago, maybe I think this fall will be marked two years since we kind of did a brand refresh. The main goal was to kind of um, create more cohesion between the different business units here, from the fresh fruit business to the, the cidery and um, the baked goods, and then the provisions we produce. And so, you know, kind of building off what we just talked about, about all these varieties of apples having um, kind of an ideal use case and the fact that we're growing 150-some-odd varieties, uh, including all the different varieties of peaches, pears, plums, etc. Discovery really is the quest and kind of the brand promise here and and facilitated by the great membership of the co-ops in the area who are also on this kind of quest to discover things that you, you 
would never find in your mainstream grocer, um, but might be the best thing you've ever tried. Uh, so that promise of discovery was um, easier to explain, for one thing, because um, as we might talk about, when you're, if you're not organic and you're conventional and it's very black and white, but there is, in fact, a, a large middle ground. And um, rather than trying to build our whole tagline on that, so to speak, um, we and, and the, the great group of women that we worked with, Susan and Katie from Ruthless and Wellington, who led us through this rebrand, came up with Discover Ocean Made, and we loved it. I agree that it sounds a lot better than just like, we're in this middle ground, but don't worry, like it's still good. <laughs> just doesn't have the same ring to it. Yeah, it, it warrants a longer conversation than you can typically put um, on a package or an advertisement. You would have to significantly increase your packaging just to be able to fit that tagline. Which gets into our next topic of sustainability. Here at the co-op, we love all things local and sustainable. And it's sounding like you do too. So let's talk more about this eco-fruit and eco-apple program you're a part of. Sure. Anastasia um, and the Littleton Co-op membership, we, we are, uh, as we mentioned, we have from the very beginning, we have experimented with organic production and settled into primarily growing uh, in an eco-apple program, but we, um, our stone fruit is also eco-certified, and we do have organic acreage. We, we love organic, um, and that protocol works really well for growing uh, tree fruit in arid regions like eastern Washington. I think a, a little over 90% of organic apples sold in the U.S. comes from, from that part of Washington. That might be, I'm sorry, Western Washington. But the climate here in the U.S. is very different. We've got much more rain. We have twice as many diseases that the trees are susceptible to. There's over 60 species of damaging insects. Um, and it just kind of makes the national organic standards impractical. So it's, it's not anything against being organic that we wouldn't want to be organic. It's just not feasible uh, to be able to supply our communities year-round with, with this fruit if we were to pursue that. So... You know, to Bill's point, that's that's where this eco program has really found a sweet spot for us and for the local community. Um, and it brings together scientists and farmers, and their the protocols are revisited every single year um, to be the most environmentally friendly. I think they fall into seven different areas. It goes into from from spray reductions to pollinator protection and pest monitoring and management, uh, soil and water conservation, and really trying to cultivate the, the healthiest ecosystem over time on the land here. Aside from the, the fruit growing standpoint, we, we all have to make these decisions and it's really nice to be able to have conversations like this and to be able to sample in stores um, certain times of the year and be able to, to speak directly to the decisions that we make day in and day out. The, the solar panels that, that were added um, over two stages, we have I think 24 all earth renewable solar trackers and we have a fixed installation here on the main cold storage. Um, it doesn't sound like it's very efficient to take the heat of the sun and produce electricity to then cool our apple crop for the 12 months, but that's exactly what we do. And whether we argue about the efficiency of that process, it, it feels a lot better to, to be able to show customers and, and for our staff to be around the, the power generation, right? It's, it's not the same, not in my backyard. We love looking at our solar panels. Um, we've explored wind energy here, but the, the payback there is 
longer term than we can justify just yet. Um, so I, I think around a half of our electrical usage is now covered by uh, our solar generation, and we're looking forward over the years to improving that. We can burn a lot of diesel fuel um, mowing around each individual orchard tree, and the other extreme of that is uh, the straight use of herbicide. So we've settled in on a combination where we limit our amount of herbicide usage, but we use a, a, a significant amount of bark mulch coming from the prunings of our trees each year to uh, reduce the pressure um, of grasses and other weeds that would be competing with the trees. But we've also moved uh, aggressively toward planting these high-density orchards where trees are planted only two feet apart and the rows are 12 feet apart. So any branch larger than you know, uh, an adult's thumb get cut off because they're actually too large. And this, this may be shocking for the listeners to hear, but in growing a very uh, small tree, we can reduce the, the fungal pressure, right? The tree dries out very quickly. Um, the fruit quality improves because it, it's all exposed to sunlight. So the sugar development of the apple is improved. But there's also some safety measures when it comes back to our staff. We don't have individuals on 30-foot ladders in these old New England trees that we, we first inherited here. And you can imagine trying to get off 4 million pounds of fruit, 4 to 5 million pounds of fruit each year with individuals climbing a 30-foot ladder with a 40-pound sack of apples uh, day in and day out. There's, you're bound to have an accident, and we, we are trying to move toward having no ladders and actually picking off of mobile platforms where the where the apple bin is right close to the picker to improve their, their work. The same thing is happening when we go pruning. We have mobile platforms, and we find that it's actually quite hard to get our staff to go back to pruning the bigger, older trees that still are here and haven't been renovated yet because the efficiencies are so great in the, in the new plantings. But beyond the, the safety side of things um, and the improved efficiencies, we, we find that um, the inputs are reduced in half, but our production levels have gone up. So we can greatly in, uh, reduce the uh, fungicide or insecticide usage, and that really is uh, important to speak about. So 50% plus, maybe 60% reduction um, in inputs, and I can get into the details further, and I'm happy to do that if, if anyone would like to reach out and speak directly with me. Thank you both for sharing all of those details. And Bill, I really liked how you mentioned the bit about the well-being and safety of your employees. I don't think enough people think about that when thinking about what makes food quote-unquote good and what makes a company quote-unquote good and ethical. You know, if we had a chance to expand on that a little bit, I think it's really important for everyone to, to know and um, certainly can follow up with questions, but uh, we have a crew of 55 men that come from Jamaica every year, and that may sound like um, uh, very disconnected from the local community, but I would argue that the 30 to 35 full-time jobs that we provide for local staff everywhere from you know sales and marketing to truck driving to mechanical jobs to you name it, right? These, these professional jobs that are provided for year-round staff with access to health benefits I think are highly tied to the fact that we have a very stable crew in a legal program called the H-2A program. So these men can come over for 10 months. Most of them come for just the two months of harvest. 
but there's a core group that's with us a full 10 months of the year. And I really feel that, you know, their professionalism here and what they bring to the table is really helping us in our sustainability and being able to commit to the year-round employment of our other 35 U.S. staff. So it's, it's a hats off to those men, and they're, they're flown here. They're housed on farm. Um, they have transportation to, to go food shopping and such. And these guys come year after year, so they are critical to the success of the farm. I certainly don't want them – I want them at the forefront of the conversation because, because of their, their importance here. Yes, definitely. And I think your intentional inclusion of your Jamaican workforce in this conversation shows just how critical they are in this whole operation. Now, getting into our more mature section of our time, let's talk about hard ciders. If you're under 21, just like cover your ears or something. Obviously, use your own apples, but you also talk about how Champlain ciders are about taking a traditional cider and adding, quote, a modern Vermont spin. Is this in reference to the apples, or is there something more to it? Well, you bring up a good point. We aren't shy about using some of our readily available dessert apples as a base for a blend like Farmstead. Um, but we're really proud of being able to put 30% plus cider-specific varieties in a cider called Kingston Dry. That, that product is one of the ones I'm most proud of because it's coming from a 30-acre block of trees that is uh, true cider apples. Uh, we can expand on that a little bit if there's interest. But I think it's really important to talk about the fact that we're not afraid to put Macintosh and Empire and Cortland in our blend. We talked about how it puts a lot less pressure on us horticulturally to grow the perfect apple so that um, most commercial apple orchards have to have a very high pack out when the fruit runs across the packing line because they don't have necessarily this fallback plan of, of value-added products. So we can tolerate a, a fresh fruit pack out of 60% because we need 50% of our production to go toward uh, sweet cider or apple pies or hard cider. And we're speaking about hard cider specifically. So it's really fun to make a, a red, use a red flesh apple called Redfield to make a, a rosé uh, cider. That's fun to do, but it's also really nice to make a New England blend called Farmstead and, and not be shy about using those dessert apples because the American palate isn't honed into only these traditional cider apples being used. And it's been fun to maybe gradually educate those consumers and have them start off drinking some Farmstead and then try to graduate into into a drier cider such as Kingston Dry. And I hear everything you said is just more reason to drink cider. <laughs> But in talking about production levels and what amounts are used for fresh versus cider, you've made me really curious about what exactly makes an apple good for cider versus for fresh eating or otherwise. Sure. Yeah. Um, so a, a table apple or a dessert apple that you could, most people would buy to put in lunch boxes or just have at home on, on a regular basis are sweet. And sometimes they're a little tart too, but you know, America's favorite apple right now, Honeycrisp or Gala or Fuji or some of these club varieties that are out there are typically very sweet. Um, and you can still make a, a, a great cider with these apples. But then in our cellar block, where Bill's growing these great old world varietals, 
a lot of people will refer to them as spitters. They are not sweet. Um, some may have sugar, but uh, in comparison, they're not sweet. They may have thicker, rougher skins. They will have a lot of, um, you know, bitterness to them. They'll have more acid to them, and, and they'll have tannins. So these are a lot of the characteristics that um, people come to appreciate in wine. And in fact, cider is made the exact same way wine is, and, and our head cider maker used to be a, um, a wine corrector, and he's he's quite a genius, we think, over there, and he's won a lot of awards in the recent years, including good food awards for what he's done. But on a high level, um, that's, that's the main difference. I would have never thought about it that way. I've really learned a lot today, but I think I've yet to learn the most important thing of all. And it's the question that will lead us out today. Gentlemen, what is your favorite apple? I can can evade the question by saying it changes with the season. So as the season progresses, progresses, there's always something, an old friend that comes up. And so it's fun to start the season with a a soaking apple. That's a... Uh, a green apple that turns yellow and has nine lives. It can be picked tart. It can be picked rather sweet, but it has more complex flavors later. And it's not an old heirloom. It's, um, it's a modern apple, modern dessert apple. My daughter Rosa has chosen that as her favorite. So I think I have to include that in my list. But as you progress later in the season, I'm a fan of crimson topaz. It's disease resistant. It has, uh, it's a tart apple. Um, I think as much as we see the American palate craving sugar, there still are people eating uh, Granny Smith, which is a sour tart apple. So I'm relieved that, that those people haven't disappeared. And I think there's a whole world of, of uh, nice uh, apples that are not um, sweet-centered. So you heard silken, you heard crimson topaz, uh, and there are many more, but... But uh, there's a start. I, I too, and, and our head cider maker, I think all our fr- favorite fresh eating is probably crimson topaz, but I won't be a copycat. So when I first came here, one of the first apples that Phil had given to me was one called Keepsake, um, which is actually a, a parent to the honey crisp apple that everybody enjoys today, um, except it's much older. And it has a little bit of rustling on the outside. It's kind of heart-shaped if you look at it from the bottom, and it has these amazing, the sugar from it is is floral and honey instead of candy, if that makes any sense. So if I'm craving an apple on the sweet side, that is absolutely my go-to, and I love introducing people to it because it's such a unique sweetness. And if I'm feeling something a little more tart on a particular day, I'd probably go with an Ashmead's kernel or a Wixen. And right now what I'm, I'm eating on a daily basis is something called a smoothie. And that's also another heirloom apple that you might take a look at it on the shelf and, <laughs> and turn your head because it's not the most beautiful apple to, to the average person. But it's rusted in and it gets this great blush to it and it's got great texture. It's a very dense apple. So that's the type of thing. That... I guess I will accept your evasive answers on the sole ground that there was clearly still a lot of thought put into
sticking around for another episode of That's Rad. What's your favorite part of fall? I think mine is the beautiful fall foliage northern New Hampshire has to offer. But apple cider donuts are a close second. But after this episode, I'm thinking I should go home and try drizzling some maple syrup on an apple. Potential new afternoon snack? I don't know. We'll see. While I do that, I encourage all of you to make sure you're subscribed to That's Rad wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to help me have an even better fall season, drop us a rating and review while you're at it too. And as always, let us know what you want to hear from your local cooperatively owned food podcast. Until next time, remember to eat, sleep, and be rad. Rad is a production of the Littleton Food Co-op. Anastasia Marr directs and hosts. Jesse Smith and Annie Stewart produce. Becky Colpitz provides unrelenting positivity and moral support. The Littleton Food Co-op is Littleton, New Hampshire's community-owned grocery store. We put our money where your mouth wants to be. Local farms, of course. No membership is required to shop here. Come check us out sometime just off exit 41 at 43 Bethlehem Road in Littleton. Or if you're online, check us out at littletoncoop.com.